Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So um, I think that you know, like the the entrepreneur that we have today, I, I think you're really going to enjoy the conversation here. I mean, he's done it so many times. I mean, I was I was getting dizzy just from like really learning, you know, like about this story. So I think that that you're really going to enjoy this one. Uh, you know, he's been there, he's done it, you know, many many years. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our our guest today, Carlos Cashman. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me, man. It's fun to be here. So originally born in Illinois, but raised in Oklahoma. So uh, tell us about your upbringing. <laughs> it's, so the, the easiest way to describe it is the city I was born in in Illinois is called Peoria. And if you've ever been in the ad business in America, there's a phrase they used to always use, will it play in Peoria? Like, and the, the thinking was Peoria was the most average city in America. And so the idea is if the ad will play in Peoria, it'll work for America. Well, a few years later, Peoria became not the most average. Another city took over as the most average city in America. Guess where? Tulsa, Oklahoma. So <laughs> I moved from one to the other. I don't know if it followed me or what, but like it was kind of like the classic upbringing in you know, suburban America. It was it's a great place to grow up. I mean, I really I, I enjoyed it and had a lot of fun. That's amazing. So how, how did you get into all this uh, computer thing? And also, I mean, were your parents or anyone in your family also entrepreneur? Or how did you get this thing about, you know, like trying to think about the, the future and, and dream about like solutions where other ones perhaps see problems? You know, I think, I think people, kids in particular, naturally do that, right? I mean, look at any child before the, our education system has stamped it out of them. And don't get me started there. It's a whole other thing. But like, they're all creative. They're all trying to come up with things and solve problems. And, you know, I think it's kind of natural. And I just was able to go with it because of where I grew up. And my parents were not entrepreneurs and did anything particular. But my dad did, um, he was a business, he was a banker. And, I, you know, his favorite magazines, Business Week, Forbes, stuff like that. Were, I've been reading those since I could read, since I was in second or third grade, because they were around, right? And back then, we only had three channels of TV, remember? So <laughs> you had to find something to do. Yeah. So, you know, my, but there was a real culture of learning in the family, right? I mean, my mom, you know, took a job selling encyclopedias just so that we could have an a set of encyclopedias at home. Because I don't know if you remember how expensive encyclopedias were, right? But a thousand, two thousand bucks. But as an employee, you got them at a huge discount. And so I guess that was entrepreneurial of her because she had to go from door to door selling those. Um, 
But so we had a real culture of learning. And, you know, I, I just these business magazines, you're just constantly reading business stories that are exciting and fun about, you know, how someone did something and built something. I think that's probably where the where the seed was planted, right? So then how did you get into computers, Carlos? Well, you know, I never, so, I mean, I I saw the, the Apple II, right? The, people remember the Apple II Plus, Apple IIe, right? Back in the late 70s, early uh, early 80s. We had one in my classroom at school. And it turned out also a couple of my best friends' fathers had computers. I mean, so I would, I mean, any kid would just be fascinated with a computer. I mean, what a, um, so one of my best friends' fathers worked for HP, I think. And he had one of these you know, a, a serious like HP workstation at home. And, you know, this was monochrome screen, you know, either the green and black or, yeah, I think it was orange and black screen with text only, basically. Um, and, you know, and we had di floppy disks. I don't know if anyone will remember this, but the size of records, like it was an actual floppy, which people probably don't remember anyway today, right? Um, but, uh, you know, they were, they were 12 inches, 16 inches to a side there. It was crazy. And, you know, they stored probably 2K worth of data, but, you know, we learned how to boot up, you know, games on there. We would play you know, stuff like NetTrack or, or Dungeon, these really simple, like, text-based games and stuff. But it was fun. And it's to a kid, it's just fascinating. You spend hours doing that, right? And, you know, with the Atari 2600 too, all that stuff, it was a really good time. So that got the interest. And then, um, you know, having the Apple II at school, I mean, it was just one of these things where I had a friend who was really into it also. And, um, and he had one at home, uh, Chris Chang. And uh, it's, and we would sit there at lunch. I remember we skipped recess for months to try to figure out how to make a dot move on the screen, you know, using basic. We had to teach ourselves the basic language with these books they had. No teacher there knew how to use it. So we just stayed at lunch and taught ourselves how to use it. It was great. And I was very fortunate to have access to that, right? So um, I never became a phenomenal programmer, but I enjoyed it. I spent hours programming. So then I got my own VIC-20, right? And I did basic programming on that. You ended up landing in, in MIT, which is where you typically have the, you know, some of the best engineers, you know, in the world. So, so how, how, do you, how do you land in, in MIT? Well, you know, it's, so it's funny. I, I mentioned Chris Chang in fourth grade because he ended up moving in sixth grade. We lost touch and we both ended up at MIT <laughs> at the same time when we were wow. 18. Totally randomly. <laughs> um, we hadn't talked to each other in 14 years. Um, so it must have been something about playing with the Apple II for the two of us. You know, MIT, it's funny. Like, I'm not a super tech geek, and there are brilliant people there. Um, I went there because I read about MIT in Omni Magazine back in, like, fifth grade. And I read about the Media Lab, and it got me super excited about what they were doing there. You know, it's just I had never heard of MIT at that point. And, um, but I said, wow, that's the kind of place I want to go to school. You know, as you get to, you know, in high school and you move along, you start to hear you know, like I was a pretty social guy, played all these sports. And you hear the stories, oh, they're just nerds. All they do is study. And so, you know, I started thinking, well, I don't want to go to school there. And there's no way. And I was looking at, you know, other schools I might be more excited about. UC Berkeley, you know, I always wanted to live somewhere like California where there are palm trees. But, um, you know, you know, what you find out when you do go to the schools is that it's, you know, it's hard, it's intense, but it's not just a bunch of nerds. They're extremely well-rounded people. They have a lot of fun, very social. And I got to do a, a school visit early on and I discovered that and had a fantastic time. So I did end up applying and it luckily it got in and ended up going. It was great. Very cool. And then after this you left, you go to New York City to do movies and and then <laughs> basically you finally get into the startup world. I mean you you found a job at a startup and, and I know that there's a funny story there. Yeah, you know, I, I love how you just gloss over 
do movie, move to New York to make movies. What else do you do with an MIT degree? <laughs> but you know, <laughs> you know, as they say, everybody wants to be in pictures, right? I enjoy writing the creative aspect, and I had a, I had a fraternity brother who'd grown up in the industry, so we both moved to New York to try to do that. But but yeah, look, with an MIT degree, I, I you know, rather than be a waiter, I actually tried to get hired at CompUSA. And uh, they wouldn't hire me, believe it or not. <laughs> they wouldn't even interview me to sell computers. Uh, I think they must have thought I was joking or something. So, you know, what what ended up happening was, and, and this is and this is indicative of a lot of things in my life and my career. Uh, you know, I talk about being opportunistic. Uh, you know, as an entrepreneur, I think you have to be. Um, but so I was fairly new to New York, right? I didn't want to, I didn't understand the subways at all at that point. I didn't want to, I couldn't afford to pay for cabs or anything. So I, I was like, if I'm going to go to work, has to be somewhere I could walk from my apartment. So I picked out like a 10, 20 block radius from my apartment. And then I said, okay, well, how do I find companies that have computers here? Well, there's no internet back then. So I went to the white pages, right? Yellow pages and white pages. And the computer section was like half the freaking book. So I knew I went to computer software and services. And there's about 36 pages or 40 pages of computer of listings there of companies. And I said, okay, I got to narrow this down. So my name starts with CC, Carlos Cashman. So I'm going to go to the C section. I'm going to pick the first four companies I can walk to from my apartment, and I'm going to go drop off resumes. <laughs> this was literally how I did this. And the second company on the list was wow. a company called Conley Corporation. They didn't even know they were listed because they weren't supposed to be in that building. Uh, they, had they were a startup, 10 people. They had literally bribed their way in by buying the super a case of whiskey. And they were in this office building on some floor, and no signs, nothing. It was half empty, and I had to go literally just knocking on doors to find who these people were. And, you know, it was a phenomenal, exciting, you know, a, a company that was doing raid software and hardware, you know, and just starting to grow. And, you know, the founder of that was a guy named Rick Calvillo, who's a great entrepreneur and still a very good friend of mine. And, you know, we're still in touch. We both live in Boston today and we've done some business together many times since then. So yeah, I walked in and found Conley Corporation and, and worked there for a couple of years, you know, and then the whole startup, piece of my career obviously took off faster than uh, than the movie business thing did so so there you go yeah and you you never look back i mean that's how, how you got hooked into the startup world and then i understand that uh, you know then you went to frankfurt balkind and i know that there you know you really had the um you know mr balkind also being your you know your mentor and providing great guidance so what were the three lessons that you take away from from this experience that you got from him from frankfurt balkind you know I don't know about three. Let me think about that for a minute. But for sure, like it was a big message of quality. I mean, that that place was just an unbelievable um, source of talent. If you look at some of the top creative directors in the world today, like many of them have gone through a two-year stint at Frankfurt Balkine. It was like the MIT of design shops, man. I mean, it was intense. Tony, Frankfurt Balkine, you know, what did I learn? I mean, it's it, one of the major lessons was quality, right? I mean, it's just... The people and the talent there were fantastic. He, you know, he and the team there had a real eye for talent across the board and letting people, letting the talent do what it needs to do to succeed. Right? It was a, it was an intense environment, but it was also, you know, um, nurturing in a lot of ways. I think so. You know, one of the things when you've got great people, they can do great things. So it was something I really saw in practice there. Another thing he really taught me, which carries over to more than just the design and creative world, was that um, the phrase creativity thrives in a box. And it's really fascinating when you think about it. But I've seen this over and over. If you take a group of people and say, you know, here's your task. You know, you have to, you know, create a design for this ad for Pepsi. 
just whatever you want, anything. Okay. That's, it's tough. They can get stuck. They can spin in circles. But when you say you can only use black, red, and blue, and it has to fit on a page, it's eight by 12. And you give them a bunch of rules. You give them a box to work in. It actually makes creativity thrive in a way you never thought possible. It's really fascinating. You know, you can see it in these competitions like at MIT and stuff where they give you a box of junk to build something, you know, like 270 or something and say, build it. It's phenomenal. It's amazing to see what people do where a lot of people can just get stuck and lost when there's no bounds to work within. So that was, uh, I've, I've carried that lesson over for years. So I'll give you two. How's that? Got it. <laughs> That's good. That's good. And then obviously this uh, was a nice segue into you going at it and, and building your first one, which was Opus 360. And this was a, uh, a spin-off, you know, from Great Peak, and 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 here obviously you raise some money, and then you got caught in the middle of the dot-com uh, bust. So, um, so how was this experience for you? Tell us about it. Well, I mean, that was my MBA, man. <laughs> Basically, um, yeah, it was fun. it was a fantastic experience in a lot of ways. It was also really tough in a lot of ways. So, I joined a company, Great Peak, as a very early employee. Um, with the co-founders were friends of mine, and. Um, I built software there that ended up, we, and we sold Grey Peak to US Web in a couple of years. You know, I mean, this was the late 90s. It was getting just crazy and frothy. And uh, we spun out my company at that time to sell the software I developed for Grey Peak to other services companies. And, um, you know, Opus 360, we raised $50 million. I, you know, did the whole Sand Hill Road thing, going up and down in Silicon Valley, meeting everybody, pitching, learned how to how to craft a business plan, how to talk to investors, how to do all that stuff. And and Opus, we also built the organization to several hundred people, right? Including a fairly, several acquisitions and a fairly sizable acquisition of about a hundred people at a company in LA. Um, Great company, great people. Um, So yeah, look, I got experience across the board in in that whole thing. But you know, like I say I'm the poster child for the dot-com boom and bust. I mean, you know, it was crazy. You know, with all that money, there comes I, one of the biggest things I learned there is it can be defocusing. You know, the companies I've been a part of or I've seen that are have been much more successful are the, the hit rate is higher. I think when you have when you're struggling, when you don't have a lot of money, it's it's kind of that thriving in the box kind of thing. But when you're forced to get creative about how you do things and to generate revenue, you can end up in a much healthier place um, more often than not. And you know, too many entrepreneurs nowadays think that entrepreneurship is making a deck and pitching Sand Hill Road and raising 20 million and then you have a party. Like and that is not a business. I mean, that is a model and it's works it's worked fantastically for Silicon Valley. There, you know, phenomenal world-changing companies come out of there, but the hit rate is tiny. And you know, the backers who back those things, that's it's great for them. You know, they expect a one out of 10, one out of 20 hit rate to be a massive, but all the entrepreneurs, you know, every time they do a company, it's an investment, they stay involved, they watch it, but they can do 10, sit on 10 boards. As an entrepreneur, you've got, you can do one thing with your time. That is the most important thing you can do. And you're going to spend years on it. You know, the low end, a couple of years, the high end, 10 years, whatever. So you're not going to have a lot of swings at bat, right? It, it can be tough to. So, you know, the, the challenge, like, like building successful companies and strong companies, I think is more the, the, the model that's healthier for entrepreneurs is to do it in that less funded, hungrier kind of way, I find. So, look, Opus was not that. We had tons of money. We had Herman Miller chairs and a designed office. And we, we had real business. We sold enterprise software right. and we, for millions of dollars. You know? and, and we had customers. and it was, it was going, but we weren't profitable. And that wasn't a core focus. And so it was, it was, a, it was a challenging time you know, to go through all that, build that, 
raise all that money. And, uh, you know, I wasn't entirely pleased with all the everyone I met in that process. And then going public in 2000, I mean, our, our offering was literally canceled twice that week. It was the week of April 7th, 2000. I think the market crashed 700 points on Monday. And, you know, the bankers called up and said, hey, you're not going public. And at that point, you need the money. You've lined up all this stuff. It's like, it's crazy. And then the market came back 500 points on Tuesday. It's kind of like nowadays. <laughs> and they said, oh, well, we can take you public. Wow. And then it crashed again. They said, we can't. It was literally a game time call at 8 a.m. on Friday morning. Um, and, you know, they said, yeah, we can sell the shares. We'll get it out. And we got it done. Um, but, you know, it was uh, everyone thinks you take company public. You're loaded. I mean, I learned the meaning of the word paper money. Right. I mean, <laughs> I was 28. I was worth many more millions on paper that I, I had in years, but it all disappeared. I, I left there losing money, right? I mean, the money I'd invested in that company was more than I took out. You know, I'm talking 100 grand I, I put in, and I took out less than that, and it left there in, in large amounts of debt. But I, but I learned a lot. <laughs> it's an interesting experience. Yeah. And then so, after this, after this, I mean, it's a, it's interesting because I mean, we, we, we could, we could go for hours. I mean, your experience is unbelievable. But, but after this, you went, you lived on a motorcycle. You met your wife on Matchpoint. Really amazing. Match.com. Uh, yeah. you match match.com, sorry. And then and then basically after this, there was say, I mean, you were you were like thinking what's gonna be next. And then you went to a brunch, you know, like with some friends of your wife. And this kind of like opened up your mind to the fact that it was possible again. And then after this event, you know, you started launching and rolling out companies. Now, what I want to do here is I wanna mention the companies and you tell me what was the lesson learned, and then we're gonna end up with Russia because I wanna spend some some time on Thrasher. So, so first company, Asset Performance. What did you learn from Asset Performance? Asset Performance Technologies Incorporated. Long name. I went the opposite of all the uh, .com cute names intentionally <laughs> to make something very right. complicated. Um, you know, what I learned there, I mean, I, I would say, uh, this goes a bit to the quality thing, but we had a phenomenal product. And you can't go wrong with high quality product. The, the company went through ups and downs, highs and lows over the years. But at the heart, there was a, a product no one else had. And, you know, it was tied preventive maintenance to heavy industrial equipment, very complicated stuff. And the company was ultimately very successful because of that, you know. And so that focus, if you build something great, you know, you can you can make other mistakes, you know, but but that's at the heart of what you got to do. Very cool. And then the next one, Course Advisor. Yeah, Course Advisor, great company, you know, grew it very quickly here in Boston uh, and, uh you know, two years sold it to the Washington Post. I would say um, speed was something that was uh, speed can be a weapon. We learned in, in, in with Corsair in particular, and you know, look through no fault of the Post or ours. Right, right after we sold it, the government you know crashed, came crashing in on the uh, for-profit school industry, who were most of the buyers of the education leads we uh, produced, and that whole space got really hammered down. And had we not moved quickly and done a deal, you know, we would have been in a very different place. Got it. And then obviously you moved to California, lived on a vineyard. I mean, oh, unbelievable, unbelievable story, <laughs> Carlos. And you and you start Constellation CK. So what was the lesson with Constellation CK? Oh boy, Constellation CK is still lessons going on. I still got the business. You know, too complex an idea can hurt you. Um, we had a we had a pitch that just was there was no way I could frame it the the core idea to make the the people we needed. To, to partner with us, to make them understand it work. It was newspapers and magazines, like an industry that was losing money. We were bringing them away to make a lot of money, but it, it, it hinged on complex, you know, understanding SEO and Google, and they were all deathly afraid of 
So, you know, that, that killed it out of the gate. Basically we couldn't find enough people cause it was a little too hard to understand. Got it. And then after this, you went and you did Q notes. So what happened with Q notes? Yeah. Q notes, you know, what? don't, don't build a feature, build a product. <laughs> Q notes was an awesome feature <laughs> for something like YouTube. I mean, it was, you know, VH1 pop-up video for music on your phone or on your computer. Right. So you could have fat. It was like Twitter for songs and stuff where, where you could put facts and information in there. People could follow each other and you could learn about songs and people and stuff. But it was really neat. But, you know, ultimately, it, again, this relied on someone like YouTube or Vivo or Sony or something partnering with you. And if they didn't, you, it was tough to make a go of it. Um, the whole consumer acquisition piece, customer acquisition was just too tough. So and we also undercapitalized it. You know, yeah. with more capital, it might have been successful. And then the next one is Orion CKB. But but here here's the, the cool fact. So Orion CKB, you actually sold this one. And at the same time, you sold the encyclopedia.com and then assetperformance.com all at the same time. So what, what, what was the, the lesson there? Um, get great people around you. <laughs> I sold three companies and still wasn't home for dinner every night with my, with my wife and kids at five o'clock. So, you know, I had amazing teams in each one of those that were able to do most of the, you know, stuff and get those things done and, you know, just needed my guidance at the top. I mean, you know, they were always, I look, I, I'm always about people. You'll see this as a recurring theme in what I do, but, you know, I, I when I see a task or something to do, I ask who, um, you know, not what, right? Because I, I love people. I love meeting people and, uh, and, and, and then finding opportunities and matching them up with people. So the way I was able to do those three things is because I had amazing teams and we had great people in each one of those things. And then the, um, you know, obviously the one that I really want to touch on is Thrash.io. I mean, obviously Thrash.io, what a rocket ship. So let's talk about Thrash.io and, and how did this, you know, come about and, and how did you guys bring it to life? Well, so if we go into the details of a lot of these companies, you'll see a daisy chain effect going on where I'm in one company and something I need or something I learn there leads to another one. Right. Um, and then, you know, I just I, I'm just I just go after these opportunities. I mean, everybody has these moments. Right. Goes, oh, well, this would be a good idea. But people will do it. I, I just do. I can't help it when I when I see something out there that needs to get done or can get done. It's an opportunity to make money. I just almost have to go after it. Drives me crazy if I don't. So. Well, at, at Orion, we had a lot of e-commerce customers and we were learning about, you know, starting to learn about the Amazon ecosystem. And I saw the opportunity that was happening with the direct to consumer and that all these people were, you know, the, the, the supply chain around the world had been largely figured out and automated. China had just done automated manufacturing to a degree. I still think people don't particularly appreciate um, how strong and how deep it is. And so now you had, you know, people able to you know, ship product, a couple of people, the good idea could get it built and shipped from Asia to the U.S. and sell it through a three, a third party logistics provider who would do the warehousing for you. I mean, you never had to touch the product and, you know, you, you'd help design it, whatever, but then you set up the Shopify side, bring customers and you're in business or you sell it on Amazon, right? Obviously. So, you know, I learning about seeing all that was just amazing to me watching this happen. And a lot of these were our customers at Orion. And I started to say, well, hey, maybe I could do this. And and we started looking at maybe doing a roll-up of e small e-commerce businesses. Um, but, uh, you know, it would, it's fairly challenging because every, you know, you get 10 of these doing $2 million a year each. Now, yeah, you can roll those up, but there may be 10 different e-commerce software packages they're using, right? Big commerce, WooCommerce, Magento, you know, Shopify, like whatever. They may have 10 different 3PL relationships. They may, you know, 
it, it was pretty complicated. And while looking at all that, we started looking into Amazon um, and learning about the third-party seller marketplace there, which was very similar. You got a lot of very small solo and duopreneurs, you know, building great businesses, but they're selling, you know, a handful of products and it's all on Amazon. And they, you know, what they have to do is get the product to Amazon, which is, that's not that tough. Um, you know, I'm vastly simplifying things, but essentially you find a product, you get it manufactured, you get it to Amazon and Amazon has the customers and you, you got to learn Amazon system and play their game. But, you know, and there's a that look, that's saying a mouthful, but that's really where, that's where this started. So we were modeling an e-commerce rollup. We learned about Amazon, got some data there and said, yeah, let's try this on Amazon. And, you know, we didn't know where this was going to go. I mean, honestly, like I, you know, I just bought the first business. We didn't even have the right incorporated structure or anything. I, we saw one we liked bought it and said, Hey, we could probably get a few more. And, you know, I could have bought one or two more, but, um, you know, we, we, we looked at this and saw the opportunity was bigger and, and that there were more of these available, but you know, the downside to us was, I mean, I bought a profitable business, right? There's something making money. This goes back to what I was saying about, you know, making money, you know, not just, you know, thinking, making a deck and getting someone to give you money to go after something as a success or as a business. It's not to me, a business is something that buys product for X and sells it for Y and the difference between Y and X produces a profit with all your expenses figured in, right? So, you know, when we went after this, it was like, hey, this is neat. You know, we may or may not figure out how to do it. But, you know, at the, at the, the worst end, we've got products that we're selling on Amazon and they make money. And, you know, and if, and if it, at the, the best side of it would be there are a lot of these out there. They're really good businesses. We can find them and we can learn and get better at operating them and bring something to the table to improve it and therefore produce you know, great returns and therefore, you know, uh, you know entice investors to come and, and get involved. It, it turned out, you know, better than my wildest dreams, frankly, that we were able to do that quickly and effectively. So then how do you guys make money on Thrushio? Well, we sell stuff on Amazon. <laughs> you know, I mean, look, <laughs> we, buy, we buy great, you know, in, you know, leading products on Amazon, category leading products. Again, this goes back, you know, you got to start with something great. You got to start with great products. And, you know, we buy people who have done that and they've got fantastic reviews and ratings and they're producing a lot of revenue. Right. Um, so, you know, we we've been profitable since the start. I mean, you know, because we went out and bought a handful of these businesses and, you know, they have reasonable margins. And if you build it carefully and, and uh, intelligently, you can make money. So, you know, when we sell, we have a margin on everything we sell. And as long as you, you know, Y is greater than X and your costs are under, that, <laughs> you can produce profit. That's what we do. Yeah. Wow. And I mean, in, in no time, I mean, literally we're talking about you guys starting the business in 2018 and now you guys have raised the, uh, how much have you guys raised for the business? We've raised about a quarter of a billion dollars, so 250 million, some give or take a few. Got it. I mean, I'm, and, and I've seen like valuations being reported of like over 780 million and you don't have to comment on that. We don't want to get anyone into trouble, but I mean, it's unbelievable the fact that that this type of, of, of value is already on a, on a, on a business in, in such a short time. I mean, it seems like you guys really hit it, hit it hard on the product market fit. Yeah, you know, exactly. We did, man. I mean, look, I would always rather be lucky than good, man. I mean, honestly, like, so, um, you know, we were in the right place at, at a good time for this. I, frankly, I thought we were maybe a little late to the party when we started. Um, there was other companies out there talking about doing this at the time, but you know, look, I, it sounds simple, but so the best business ideas are simple. You tell the people, get it right away, and they say, wow, why isn't someone doing that yet? However, the reality is you could you could take 20 people, give them each $100 million, and say, go copy Thrasio's business model, 
And I would bet you a significant amount of cash that you might get one success out of that. And the other 19 would burn through a lot of cash. It's, it's just not always easy to do. You've started companies. You're an entrepreneur. You get it. Like, you know, I tell entrepreneurs, don't hide your idea. Don't tell everyone you know the idea. Copy business plans and leave it in every yeah. Starbucks you go to because no one's going to copy it. No one's going to do it. It takes a lot to make it happen. It's hard. So, you know, we, we were able to do that. I mean, look, I've done this a lot of times. I've I stayed in touch with great people. I mean, you know, inside Thrasio are people who are my customers at Orion, you know, friends of mine from Orion, um, you know, partners from Opus 360, people I met at kind of my first jobs. But over the last 30 years, all these people who I, you know, have been in touch with, they were all the first ones to come in and get involved and hit the ground running, right? So, you know, and, and my partner, Josh, the same, right? He's He's been an entrepreneur several times. He's been an investor, was able to bring, you know, great people to the table quickly and, you know, understood the capital structures. I mean, I've never met anybody you know, smarter or more capable, perhaps at all than Josh, frankly, but uh, but certainly when it comes to capital raising and structures and all that. I mean, look, we funded a lot of this with debt, right? It's not all equity. It's the $250 million includes a, you know, fairly significant amount of debt in there um, as well, because, you know, we're, yeah. we're, we're buying profitable companies and that's a smart way to do it. But that's a fairly advanced way of funding a company that many entrepreneurs just, you know, don't understand, wouldn't understand and wouldn't understand how to access those markets, right? Um, so this was kind of a, you know, it was a fairly advanced kind of play. This was entrepreneurship, you know, at the scale we're doing, this was entrepreneurship, you know, 505, not 101, I guess, whatever. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but, uh, but it's been fine. It's been great. And it's been, yeah, yeah, yes. It's been a rocket ship. I mean, it was late 2018 when we really got this going and, you know, we're, you know, low to mid nine figures in revenue already profitable as heck. And, you know, we've raised a significant amount of cash to go after this. <laughs> Profitable as heck. Eh? I love that. That should be like the, the new way to go, especially in the times that we're living in. And and I see that the um that you guys have been growing like crazy, the team too. I mean, I'm seeing now on LinkedIn Insights uh, the growth in the last year is like 371%. I mean, how how do you grow a team so fast and and you guys don't you guys continue to keep your eyes on the ball in terms of the values that that you give to these people that are coming in so quickly? So I'm doing the numbers right now. The growth is actually more than 600%, but whatever, 371, <laughs> 600, let's, let's not split hairs. Um, <laughs> we have, we have How large, many employees do you guys have now? We look last time, you'd have to ask me up to the minute, but I mean, let's say as of a few days ago, probably about 250 um, around the world. So we, we, as I, you know, a lot of these are, you know, in the U S FTEs were probably low hundreds, right? Um, we have three offices in the U.S. Well, look, we have, now we have 130 offices where, where everybody is, right? But but before we all had to go home, we have an office here in Boston. We have one in New York and one in Houston. Um, and, you know, now all these people are working home. But then then we have large offices overseas in, in the Philippines, in Pakistan, um, in Portugal, in Ukraine, in Eastern Europe. There's uh, different offices spread around with a lot more people, too. And, yeah, how do you grow that? What it's, an amazing. It's, it's not easy, man, I tell you. I mean, you know it's 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 art luck art science skill everything luck put all, all put together but look at the end of the day i i've always like a lot of entrepreneurs may have heard me go through this uh, example before but a company i i think of as a super saturated solution right the, and what the first people you have to you know your first hires and the first team are like the seed crystal that drops into that and if you know what happens with a seed crystal and a super saturated solution you form a you know, that's how you form, can form crystals and you form a crystalline structure. If that seed crystal is malformed, if there's something wrong with it, the crystal that forms is brittle and screwed up and it'll break. But if that seed crystal is 
is solid and tight and good, you will form a really strong, healthy, beautiful crystal, right? And so building a company, all it all starts at the core and getting great, great people. And if you bring those great people, they bring great people. And if those great people bring more great people, you can build something amazing. And, you know, it's all any company, whether you're a biotech company or Tesla or us, like it's all just getting a bunch of people to agree to go after a goal together. That's what entrepreneurship is. And that's part of why I love it. It's building this team, um, you know. But you know, so if you get that right, there's no way you can't do it. No person can do it. No founder can do it. It's, it's just not possible. right? I couldn't yeah. hire 300 people in a year or whatever, but, but people can. Right. And, and it's amazing. What's so exciting to see is when you do start getting that right and seeing a build like, you know, the, the, the first points at which, you know, really significant things are getting done inside your company that you had nothing to do with. Like, that's awesome. That when you know, someone calls you to a meeting, and goes, hey, look, we saw this problem. Here's what we did. Here's, a, here's what the solution we developed. And you're like, it blows you away. You're like, geez, yeah, maybe I'm not that important. <laughs> Got a great team who can do all this <laughs> stuff, you know, and I'm sure you've seen that, too. You build companies, right? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I hear you. So, so, so here's one thing that I, that I typically ask that I like to ask you here. Imagine you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where, you know, in five years from now, I mean, unbelievable snooze, right? You wake up in a world where the vision of Thrasher is fully realized. What does that world look like? Oh, wow. In five years? You know, yeah. I, believe it or not, I don't think that far out. <laughs> I think it's one thing that keeps me happy, but, uh, you know, I think pretty, pretty immediately I live in the moment. Um, but look, I have had to think for Thrasio, I do think out a year always, at least I'm always saying, Hey, and pushing everyone to be ready because, you know, in a year or two, where do we need to be? Where do you need to be? Because at this rate of growth, it's just really hard to get your head around for most people. What I see for Thrasio is like, is a, is a consumer products company that, you know, is a, a second to none that, you know, manages, tens of thousands of products on online marketplaces and, you know, online direct selling. That's, you know, Amazon, but it might also be, you know, Flipkart in India. It might be, you know, some other system in Europe. It might be, you know, Walmart as well. But, you know, we are producing super high quality products from a very nimble and flexible supply chain and getting them to consumers wherever those consumers are. And, you know, I'd say it'll probably be dominated online, but, I, you know, I would be surprised to see us with some products that break out in retail and other channels. Um, you know, and at the end of the day, you, you know, you want to be selling to where the consumers are, but, you know, we will be a consumer products company, you know, designed to, to run tens of thousands of products and even, even individual brands, right. In a, in a way that we, you know, people haven't really seen before. And there's not really a direct analog. I mean, it's easy to point to, uh, you know, the newer Rubbermaids of the world, or people always talk about, you know, CPG being Unilever and P&G and the like, they tend to be more consumables and chemical, but th those are decent models, but they're, you know, they've had to go the other direction and they have, they're very different businesses that were built in the last century for what made you successful then. And they're having a hard time adapting, right? I mean, you know, you watch their, their return on, on equity and, and stock value over the years, and it's just been getting hit, 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 and hit. Um, and I think, you know, that's because we're, we're waiting for a new model. And I see Thrasio as being a multi-billion dollar revenue company, very profitable and, growing into whatever new directions it needs to, to, to reach consumers. That's amazing. So, so one question that I typically ask the, um, the guests that come on the show, Carlos, is saying, you know, taking a look, I mean, your journey is, is remarkable, right? And, and I'm wondering here if, if you had the opportunity of going back and having a chat 
with your younger self, Carlos, even though that younger self probably would not, you know, give a damn and probably wouldn't even listen. Like if you, <laughs> Definitely would. You actually had the opportunity. <laughs> if, if, if it actually listened, like what would be that one piece of advice that you would give to your younger self before launching a business, knowing what you know now and, and why? Man, that's a tough question. You, you got to give me these questions before. Give me time to think about it. <laughs> I mean, I really, I really don't know because you know, there's not lot, lots of times that question implies you would want something to change, right? There's a lot, and people go back and say, "God, if I only knew this, I wouldn't have done that." You regret it or whatever. I don't live with an enormous amount of regret or any at all, really. Like my decisions, and my choices that I made are what got me here. And and yeah, I could have done something different. You know, who knows? But who knows what would have happened had I done that? So. You know, I don't, I don't, frankly, I don't really think there's anything I'd want to go back and tell myself, I wouldn't change it. Go do what you're doing. Right. I mean, you know, it's, I, I hope that's, that's not the answer you're looking for, but I don't really have anything to, to offer to my younger self for that reason. Now, if you say what I offer to a young entrepreneur, um, I mean, it's too much. I couldn't do it in one sentence. Uh, you know, we could sit around for an hour and talk, but at the end of the day, you know, <laughs> you, you got or a couple hours, you know, you got to believe in yourself. Um, you know, the, it's easy to say, hard to do. Um, you know, and I think I've ended up with a lot more success when I've, for me, when I followed my own instincts and gut and, uh, and not tried to glom onto someone else's vision um, and someone else's idea, if that makes any sense. Um, but, you know, look, that can lead you in very bad places too. I mean, how many business plans or entrepreneurs have you seen that just can't, can't, you know, they hear that you're never supposed to give up and they're pursuing a terrible idea. And you just can't get it out of their head and they won't figure it out and they'll waste years on it, right? Um, so, yeah. you know, <laughs> who knows? A hundred percent. And, you know, when you were talking, I mean, you reminded me of the butterfly effect when Ashton Kutcher, you know, goes back in time and yep. does something and then, you know, it's like another set of problems opening up, no? Yep. So uh, totally, totally get that, totally get that, Carlos. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, to reach out and say hi, geez, um, I would say LinkedIn. Message me on LinkedIn. Um, I don't uh, accept random friend requests until I get to know somebody. I won't connect, but I am reachable on LinkedIn. I'm easy to find, Carlos Cashman. Um, and uh, I you know, respond, and I've had lots of great conversations there and, and then have created connections and met people there. It's been great. Amazing. Well, Carlos, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you very much for having me. It's been fun. Appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.